to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's Practice Journeys podcast. This podcast invites members to share their stories about their professional path, lessons learned, and how their experiences shaped who and where they are today. My name is Doug Slane. I'm an infectious disease clinical specialist at West Virginia University. I am also our global affairs liaison at our academic campus with our pharmacy program. I'm also recently the past chair of the executive committee for the clinical specialists and scientists section of ASHP. So today we'll be chatting with two individuals that I know fairly well. Uh, One is Dr. James Lee from the University of Illinois Chicago College of Pharmacy, and the other is Dr. Norman Fenn III, who is a pediatric clinical specialist at Parkview at Women's and Children's Hospital in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he is also a faculty member at Manchester University College of Pharmacy. We're going to be speaking about recruiting non-U.S. citizens into U.S.-based pharmacy residency programs. This may also uh, be relevant to fellowship programs as well, because we do get many international citizens who are interested in fellowship training uh, in addition to residency programming. Now, James was uh, recently the lead author of an AJHP article on this topic, and Norm is a Canadian citizen who had to navigate a series of complexities to train in the U.S. So we thought that having two perspectives on this might be very helpful. Now, why was this topic suggested for a podcast? Well, there's a real interest in this. Obviously, uh, hospitals and health systems are trying to increase their diversity. And we also know that in the U.S., pharmacy student admissions are decreased. But there also is a greater proportion of non-U.S. citizens who are graduating with PharmD degrees. And they are seeking postgraduate training, such as residencies and fellowships. And many of them like to pursue them in the United States. So this podcast might be of interest to individuals that are health systems, pharmacy administrators, uh, residency program directors, fellowship program directors, colleges of pharmacies, or really just anybody, uh, including some international uh, graduates who might have an interest in this as well. So I really appreciate James and uh, Norm for joining me today. And thank you as an audience for joining us as well. So let's get into some of the questions that we have for our two experts. First question is, is uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your current position. So let us start with uh, James. James, you want to give us a a brief summary about uh, who you are? Yeah, sure. Doug, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure being here. So my name is James Lean. As uh, Doug mentioned, I'm currently a clinical associate professor at the University of Illinois Chicago College of Pharmacy here in Chicago. My practice is currently in directing our pharmacogenomics service at the University of Illinois Hospital and Clinics. And I'm also a program director for our PGY2 clinical pharmacogenomics residency program here. Yeah, I, I think as far as me kind of wading into this area of international students and and practice really is it's just because I've been very fortunate, I think, in my career to be involved with our international clinical pharmacy education programs. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to uh, develop some of these programs and coordinate some of our programs where we uh, help 
bring some education and training to our colleagues overseas and also pharmacy students that visit us here in Chicago. We have had students enroll in our pharmacy school here who are international students from different backgrounds. And it's just been fascinating to hear some of their stories and some of the things that they want to do and also getting to know people who trained here in the U.S. from overseas that are now back overseas and how things were different for them, you know, now versus uh, then versus now. So that's kind of where my personal interest has been in this and just trying to help out our colleagues and students no matter where they're at. Thank you, James. Norm, you want to tell us a little bit about you? Absolutely. And thanks for having me, Doug, as well. It's really an honor to be here. So as you alluded to, my name is Norm Fenn. I'm a clinical assistant professor at Manchester University, just down the road from James in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I also practice, I spend about 50 to 60% of my time uh, working in the and covering in general pediatrics and PICU clinical services at Parkview Women's and Children's, as well as a variety of specialty services there. And so the way I kind of fell into this is I went through the whole process and learned on the fly how the immigration system works for students who are pursuing education in the U.S. and how that's different from what I experienced in Canada. And so, you know, I believe I was the only international student in my class and we went through a myriad of experiences with getting my visa to come down to the U.S. and then also when I was graduating school and pursuing postgraduate training and fellowship and things like that and how, you know, I just kind of encountered different challenges and barriers and then also learned some tips and tricks of the trade when I was going through the process as well that I think could be really beneficial to the audience. Sounds great. Okay, guys, can you summarize the various, well, actually, this one is a little bit more specific. We'll give this to James. Actually, he he wrote, a, along with some uh, co-authors, an excellent article that summarizes it very well if you want more detail. But James, maybe you could give us, uh, if you can summarize some of the various visas, different immigration statuses that one might see an international candidate using or choosing to pursue postgraduate training in the U.S.? Yeah, sure. So let me just kind of start off for PGY-1s. In the article that Doug mentioned that we did list out a couple of ones, but I want to talk about the two most common ones. The one that most residency program directors will see or fellowship directors will see will be the F-1 student visa nowadays. So that the F-1 visa is the international student visa, and that is what allows us uh, students who don't have any permanent residency or citizenship status here in the United States to come over here and study. And you'll most often see that just because students are interviewing in their final year of pharmacy school. And the nice thing about the student visa is that it does allow for an extra 12 months of training after the degree program, and that's called the optional practical training extension. So mainly what the students do is as they go through their degree programs, they actually have to update their statuses with their universities to allow them to do things like experiential training offsite. So OPT is basically this thing that is designed or it was intended to be used after you're done with your degree program and it allows you to stay for one year afterwards. So that's the thing that most PGY-1 residency candidates will come with you. Now for the PGY-2 residents nowadays, for better or for worse, really the only visa that allows a resident to continue to work in the United States is the H-1B visa. And the H-1B visa, it's very challenging because at least for pharmacy, that's the only way that people can kind of stick around for more than one year most commonly. It takes a long time to process those things. There are multiple government agencies and departments which are involved with 
kind of setting the parameters of how you would hire a prospective PGY2 resident. So you don't see it very often, but you do see it on occasion. But yeah, so the F1 visa is kind of a student determined thing. They set themselves up so that they can hopefully have the training opportunity after they've graduated. And then the H1B visa is a little bit more of an involved visa, which the employer, so the institution has to kind of get involved, but then also, you know, the applicant for the visa has to be involved with as well. Yeah. And James, what caveats should residency programs consider when they're pursuing an international candidate? And I know this this comes up a lot. I know over the years I've had our pharmacy directors or other RPDs saying we have this really great candidate, but they're not an American U.S. citizen. What do we need to do? So what are the caveats that programs need to consider? I would say that for PGY-1 residents, and in my experience and what other my colleagues have shared with me, I think, is that you just need to kind of do your homework and understand what needs to be done. I think that we've been better, and I think that the wording on the residency applications has been better to reflect, to ask applicants if their status allows them to stay for 12 months to complete training. I think before then it was written a little bit of a way, which was a bit discouraging in my opinion, but I think for RPDs to know is that, is that there's really, this is something on the student. So I would say in the interview process, you know, it, it to me would be good to have that question and just help people understand, you know, like upfront that this is something that you just need to make sure that you've started getting getting going and in the works. Um, as far as on the institutional end goes, I would say that if you ever have any questions, ask your human resources department for the institution as a whole. If your uh, institution has an international services office, ask them because they are the experts in this. You know, the pharmacy department may not have a lot of experience with employing people that require uh, visas and different things like that. But your institution, I guarantee you, is hiring people that come from all over the place. And so they can help you there. The other thing that I would say is that with the PGY-2, if you are considering PGY-2 residents, you have to start that process very, very early and have realistic expectations with yourself and with your residents that it is not a guaranteed process. And so... I have heard of successful experiences, and I have also heard of experiences which it just went all right. We we did everything as best as we could, but you know it just didn't turn out because of the timing. And I think some, unfortunately, sometimes those bad experiences kind of deter people from trying again. But I have found that consider the resident, consider your applicant very carefully, and they may be worth it for a variety of reasons to pursue that. But yeah, just to sum up, you know, engage your human resources and your international services office. Just understand that you do need to plan ahead and have some realistic expectations and just put that, put those things right up front, I think, for the residents and for your applicants, because I think that's a fair thing. And I think that they do appreciate that. Well, that that's outstanding. And, um, you know, we'll be talking to Norm here next. And just for point of clarity, the TN type of visa which is usually something that some Canadian citizens can use, is not eligible for pharmacy residencies. Is it something that can be used for doing fellowships or would, would both not be useful? Do either of you <laughs> know? I might, I might have tricked you with this question. 
I'm happy to talk about that because I actually used a TN visa for both residency and fellowship. Well, Norm, we're going to, yeah, we're going to turn to you now anyway. So why don't you tell us, you know, kind of your path and what you had to deal with uh, as a Canadian citizen to, to get your training done in, in the U.S.? Sure. Yeah. So like James alluded to, I ended up coming to the U.S. on an F-1 visa. I was really interested in pharmacy across the spectrum. And Canada at the time only had 10 schools of pharmacy. They just opened their 11th, I believe, last year. So the number of pharmacy schools in Canada is 10 or 11. At the time when I was looking at going into pharmacy school in America, it's about 110 or so. So I, I viewed the opportunities down here to be quite significant. The training was really significant. So I ended up getting an F-1 visa. But even that F-1 visa was quite a challenge in and of itself because one of the criteria that I needed to fulfill was demonstrating that I had enough money to pay for like my first semester's tuition plus room and board. So I had to show proof of about $50,000 just sitting in my account, which is not a, you know, small amount of money that, you know, poor students have anyways. So I had to kind of try to find out how I could show this. And, you know, one of the other downsides too is when you're coming to this country from another uh, country, you don't qualify for like U.S. student loans and benefits like that. So all of my education ended up being privately funded. So I ended up getting into school, University of Colorado, had a great experience. Um, but one of the limitations as well that, you know, we talked about is that, you know, you're not necessarily allowed to work full time on an F-1 visa. You're limited. You can do what's called CPT, the curricular practical training, and you're limited to work up to 20 hours per week with that training. So I ended up getting a, a like a part-time job within the university that allowed me to work uh, periodically. I got my social security card, continued all, all this on, and then Ultimately, when I decided to pursue postgraduate training and residency, you know, I was getting information, working with the college's larger legal department, international student services, everything like that. And at the time, I was able to get up to 15 months of OPT, and now it's 12 months, which is your optional practical training, which you can get after graduation. Interestingly enough, now with the current criteria, you can get upwards of three years of OPT if you're designated as one of the specialized STEM programs, according to the U.S. government. But the problem is that pharmacy itself is not recognized under STEM. Pharmacology is, drug design, pharmacal economics, industrial and physical pharmacy all factor in there, but the pharmacy itself doesn't. So because of that, we're only limited to 12 months of OPT as opposed to three years. Some institutions have a way to work around that where they can get their STEM degree and then they qualify for three years. And that would actually be a benefit to the PGY2s, but unfortunately wasn't an option for me. So when I went to, I was successful in matching in residency for PGY-1, and I filed my application to get uh, my OPT done. And unfortunately, I filed one form before another form was filed. I think I got the I-765 and the I-20 filed differently. One was sent on a Friday, one was sent on a Monday. I, I sent it in the wrong order, and my OPT got denied. And I find this out, you know, a month before I go to pursue residency. I'm literally moving to Washington, D.C., and my OPT is rejected. So I'm talking a lot with, you know, the institution, my new residency program director. Um, we're trying to figure everything out. And ultimately, I got, I pursued a TN visa. And one of the things that we kind of learn is, you know, not every, there are sometimes these loopholes that if the border crossing isn't necessarily informed or aware of the criteria, you might get away with some things like this. Um, and I found this out after the fact. I didn't know it beforehand, but I ultimately got a TN visa. Being Canadian, I had that option, which is really beneficial because otherwise I would have been in real trouble and not able to complete residency. So I, I just drove up to the border of Buffalo, crossed over, came back, got my visa, 
it was on the July 4th long weekend. So just about, you know, nine years ago. And fortunately for me, the, the border guard didn't complain that it was a residency program. In fact, he asked if I was sure I wanted to do it for that little salary. And I said, yes, I'm getting paid in education. This will be great. And it was great. But then once I finished the program, I had to get a new TN visa because my title changed, my role changed. So I had to go back to Canada. And because I didn't have my original documents, they said, nope, we're not letting you back in. So I had to have those shipped out to me in Canada. And then when I went back and saw the same person, they said, do you have your original documents? I said, yes. And I pulled them out to show them. And they're like, oh, yeah, fine. And they just kind of ignore me and just check it as a box. And so sometimes they look at your documents and sometimes they don't, but you cannot cross with just photocopies of your material. So unfortunately, my D degree looks pretty beat up. It's been through the ringer a little bit. So, you know, I ended up staying on at my institution for another year and uh, did a lot of things with them, but I pursued fellowship instead. And so I took on a clinical fellowship at Purdue University and I needed to get, again, another visa. And so by this time, I was familiar with the TN visa process since it's a whole lot simpler and easier and I don't have to worry about OPT or the H-1B or anything like that. I said, yeah, just write my letter. I go to the border. I come back. The border lets me in. But they have no reason to approve me necessarily. They can decide without any reason that they are not going to approve my application. And I ended up having to cross several times for my fellowship visa because they just didn't get the explanation. And so the difference between the residency and the fellowship that ultimately was explained to me was because I was practicing independently as a pharmacist in a clinic in rural Indiana, and I was the only one there, nobody was actually supervising me. That wasn't what I was getting trained on. I was actually getting trained on the academia side because I did an academia fellowship. And so that was okay, but because that wouldn't have qualified me. But because I was at a clinic and operating as the only pharmacist and operating under a license, I was allowed to get a TN visa for that. But the border crossing guard that ultimately explained everything to me, and I learned about all these loopholes, was when I was pursuing my fellowship one. And so one of the other challenges when I was pursuing that was they, you know, they have to have proof of everything. It, the burden of proof is on you as the applicant to show them what you're doing and, and why you meet the criteria. And when they told me they needed more documentation, I said, okay, can you be specific? Can you tell me what you're looking for here? And the answer I got was more and, and nothing else. And I said, that doesn't really help me. She's like, I just, I need more. I'm like, more what? Like information on the program. I had brought the program brochure. I had brought documentation from my fellowship director. I had brought letters, my, all of my documents, you know, I had my gigantic degree frame in my car with me. And every time you go to the border and you park there because you're getting a visa, they search your car every time, you know, it's like you, you essentially have no rights, but yeah, it's just one of those things where ultimately I learned that somebody knew what they were doing and it actually panned out later on because my wife, who was also working as a TN on a TN visa across at the same location. And that border guard said, you actually have a permanent residency card that's inactive. Do you want to do your permanent residency process and get that activated? Or do you want to do a TN visa? And obviously we picked the permanent residency because then you don't have to deal with this stuff all the time. But yeah, the one of the biggest things I think was just that the border crossing agents, they don't have any reason to admit you and it's entirely up to you. I was told at one point that I was able to be held without cause for 72 hours for whatever reason, if they just felt that whim. I kind of observed agents asking other agents, so it depends on where you're crossing. So when I crossed in Detroit, people knew what they were talking about. But when I crossed in middle of nowhere, Manitoba, when I came down, you know, they weren't necessarily sure what's going on. And it was also in the middle of the night. So it was two guys that were on and it's understandable. But, you know, it's kind of like when we're pharmacists, right? We're all trained in a myriad of ways, but 
you know, somebody who's well-trained in oncology or administration is going to know a lot more about oncology and administration than myself or, or another colleague who works in a totally different department. We have a general understanding, but we're not necessarily specialists in those areas. And I, those are just some of the observations and uh, experiences that I've had dealing with this. Well, Norm, Norm you're, that is a fascinating story. And uh, I'm glad that you eventually sorted it out to, to fulfill the career that you wanted to. And I think, James, did you want to add a comment? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm glad, Norm, that you spoke about the TN visa, uh, because at the time that we were writing this article, that was when the NAFTA agreement was being revised. And so we weren't even sure like what would actually happen with the TN visa. And yeah, so one of the things that I definitely do want to emphasize and just make sure that, you know, our, our applicants know is that the process and the requirements and the interpretation may vary by the institution that you're at. And so, you know, what I tell people is just make sure that you do your homework. Sometimes I get the questions like, you know, should I engage like an immigration lawyer to help me through this? And I said, you know, you can, it, it is at your own expense. You know, we, uh, the institutions aren't able to pay for it. In some cases, they're not allowed to. And, and so what I say is that just make sure that if you have a question that you ask and that you give yourself plenty of time to ask, because with immigration, it, some a large part of it is at a whim. Some of it is administrative. It goes with the administration of the day as well, and so you you just never know. So plan ahead and and be prepared. Thank you for those additional comments, James. Okay, guys, a couple of questions just just to see. Uh, I know that you know people you know around the world. Uh, I know James and I have have uh, been members of the U.S. Thai Consortium, and and we know a lot of international. Uh, you know, graduates in pharmacy and Norm. I know that that you certainly know folks in in at least Canada, if not other countries. But why do you think non-U.S. citizens want to complete their pharmacy training in the U.S.? Have you given much thought? Do you do you think the trend is increasing? Yeah, I, I think the U.S. is kind of setting the standard for pharmacy education in a lot of ways. One of them being that entry level PharmD program. When I was looking at going into pharmacy school in Canada, they still only had the bachelor's degree. And then if you wanted to, there are only, I believe, two or three institutions that even offered a PharmD at the time. And, and those, you know, the slots for those were limited because you could practice on a PharmD. Whereas down in America, you know, it became standard in, you know, like 2003, 2004, thereabouts, where, you know, everybody was doing the entry-level PharmD. So certainly, I, I think the, the clinical knowledge and training, it pinnacle of pharmacy education, um, or certainly at the very top with several, a couple of other countries, but even the postgraduate residency training and, and fellowship training, I think is really strong. It's competitive. It's thorough. It's comprehensive. You get experiences in that, that I don't see uh, necessarily with other countries. I was looking at possibly going back to Canada for residency training, because I knew we had residencies back home, but between the offerings, which I didn't see any PGY2s at the time, and more importantly, the stipend, because again, you know, I was paying for school out of pocket. The stipend wouldn't be enough for me to even live on back in uh, where I would have preferred to have pursued residency. And so because of that and a few other factors, you know, but a lot of it being economics, I decided to not go back initially and stay in America. And as I said, the, the training, the clinical training especially is really strong. But um, the private student loans that I took out, you know, I borrowed in Canadian funds and I paid U.S. bills with Canadian funds, which at the time I was borrowing was really fortunate. The dollar was at parity. So I got 
you know, dollar for dollar, which was fantastic. But when I was finishing up school for the last year or so, the dollar, the Canadian dollar started to become weaker against the US dollar. And by the end of it, I was worth about the one US dollar is worth about a dollar twenty Canadian. So as a result, I decided to stay in the US and, you know, pursue postgraduate training, but then also pursue careers after in the US. Because when I was paying back my Canadian loans, I was using US funds for it. So I ended up getting like a 20 to 30% bonus to pay those back. And so I feel like I was being rewarded for paying back my student loans, which I know are a point of contention right now. But again, the US dollar is really strong in the economy. And, you know, there are only a couple of countries that have stronger dollars. And so that also factors in strongly into continuing postgraduate training and also working in the US subsequently. James, you want to? You want to add some comment? I had thought about some of this too, and I think Norm, you hit them right on the head. You know, Doug, you mentioned the U.S. Thai consortium. So there have been countries, right? This is certainly it started before my time in pharmacy, but the U.S. has been a leader, I think, in orienting pharmacy to a more comprehensive role in healthcare in addressing the complex needs of any healthcare system, and so. Uh, overseas, you know, in Thailand and Singapore, they they look to us. And I think that that has had reverberations decades later, even when, um, you know, governments and, and schools are not sending over people in mass to, to basically get training, like their PharmDs and residency training. But I still think that that, that inspiration, whenever we have uh, participants in conferences come from overseas to many of our major pharmacy organizations, they get exposed and they see that through some of the educational programs that we have here, we get to broaden the horizons of, of pharmacy students and people that go to schools where actually, when you think about the pharmacy degree, it's not just a pharmacy degree that we think about, but also uh, it's more like pharmaceutical sciences, and it can be a lot of different things depending on you know the country that you come from. So I think that's one thing. Um, I've met students where, yeah, after they've they've talked to us, they they really want to get that extra training because they they see the mission and the benefits of our vision for pharmacy in the United States. And I and I think that that's something that we can be very proud of that that we can help people in that way. So so there is, I think, a lot of personal interest that they can see where in their home country, should they decide to go back, like they can take what it is that they've learned here in the United States and take it back home and start and start, um, you know, that process of change and hopefully learning from the benefits of our mistakes that we had learned that we had experienced here and kind of moving past those a little bit more quickly. Thank you, James. So, you know, we talked about the OPT visa and how, you know, oftentimes people can pursue their PGY-1 you know, as long as they're still eligible for that extra 12-month training, uh, that usually covers that. But individuals that want to get specialized training, either through PGY-2 or fellowship, what I want to talk about now is, you know, that requires typically an H-1B visa for, for most individuals, and that requires the health system or the College of Pharmacy to pay those fees, those sponsoring fees. Are there, are there any other, is it possible for other entities to pay those fees instead of, say, a hospital or school? Like, for example, can a government, can a foreign government pay? Are there other entities that can pay? Yeah, so Doug, the short answer for H-1B is no. So uh, that's very clearly uh, delineated. And that, in fact, is the challenge is that it is a huge investment and it is not a guaranteed good use of your money, I think. 
before that. And so, you know, you had mentioned, I, I have a colleague from Taiwan, you know, she trained here like many years earlier when getting a visa, like these types of visas w- was not a problem at all. And so, and unfortunately, for better or for worse, you know, the requirements to do an accredited PGY2 residency program is you have to do a PGY1 residency program. So although I think in theory it is possible for someone to somehow come back on an F1 visa to do a PGY2, I think those people are probably extremely far and few in between. And so, but yeah, you know, we, we've heard these things. I've personally heard of those questions being asked, you know, to help do that because sometimes there are some sponsoring organizations that are that are very financially flush and that they would be more than willing to do it and, and for very good reasons right uh, but unfortunately um that is not a you know that that is not allowed there there are restrictions about who needs to pay what and and that is very tight if you want to stay on the right side of things i've gone through the tn visa and the f1 visa and tried OPT and whatnot. And so the only thing that I've found, you know, as an alternative, and I'm not necessarily advocating for this, um, but as I mentioned, my wife ended up having uh, her own green card. And so she became a naturalized citizen. And then she was able to sponsor me for permanent residency herself. And um, her parents are also naturalized US citizens. And so a family member can also sponsor you to remain in the country. And so that's the only other alternative option. And again, I'm not advocating that you, you know, marry for green card, that's illegal. But there are family, you know, if you happen to be in love and get married, and um, all of that works out, that is the only alternative way in which you are able to stay in the country, because people are sponsoring you to remain in this country, but it has to be only through a family member. It can't be like a friend or, you know, a colleague, it has to be like a relative. Great point, Norm. Thank you. Uh, oh, James, you want to add something extra? Yeah, no. And I, I, I was going to save that for a little bit later too. You know, one of the observations that I've noticed is that folks that end up to staying here in the United States, it ends up being being because they, they did have like a family sponsor or something that was willing to, I think, to do that for them. That or they, you know, they were born here and they had citizenship, and then they ended up growing up overseas as well. And so, those are some of the things that I've seen in the past. Can you guys comment on how a PGY2 early commitment process might work with visas? Yeah, so I've seen the process work and I've seen the process kind of go awry and it kind of seems like it's random as kind of Norm alluded to sometimes. Really, I think if you have determined, I think number one, this is one of those things that you have to think at least a year in advance. Um and maybe even two or three years in advance, because I think it's actually a substantial budget line item uh, that you have to think about. Number two, as I mentioned, it's just the processing time. So um, the processing time for H-1B visas for PGY-2 is just extremely long. Some say months, and some say, some people say probably up to even a year. And so I think that if you have, if it's like the normal interview time, like December, January, and things like that, it, it, that it's too late. I would probably recommend against it um, unless your residency calendar training year is flexible, which for most institutions, it is not. That usually tends to be the thing that I see where people do it. So in my experience and through observations, it's been the process was started almost like right when the PGY2 year started, if not in the closing months of the PGY one year to get that ball rolling. And you had to know exactly what you were doing and, and what to push up with, because uh, one of the challenges is that you have to go through a prevailing wage determination. 
And that ends up being probably something that just even extends the process out any longer because sometimes they'll come back and say, well, we think that a resident should be paid a full pharmacist salary. And that's not going to fly for at least two reasons off the top that I on top of my head that I can think of. And so sometimes there's this exchange back and forth that just further delays things. So I think that you have to think about the budget. You have to think about the flexibility of the training year. You have to think about the critical role that any resident would play. So if they are like the one that is supporting your service and you have to have someone there, that's different than if you have three or four residents on that service and you can afford some of that flexibility. But time and planning is of the essence. And it's almost like you have to start almost before the PGY2 year begins if you want to have the best opportunity just from a time perspective. Thanks, James. Well, I think we have time for one quick question here to, to wrap things up. Are there any resources that you would recommend for health systems or colleges of pharmacy leaders to learn more about these complex topics? Yeah, so I would tell you that I'm I'm happy to see that there are more programs who are willing to consider people, uh, students and applicants with student visas. So I would definitely reach out to those programs because I'm sure that they they've figured out how to do it, how to do it well, but they have the experience. I know that there are a lot of PGY1 pharmacy residency programs targeted directly towards international students. And so I would engage with those programs because again, they, they've talked the talk and I'm sure have, have worked through concerns that the institutions have thought about. The other thing, you know, as I mentioned earlier is um, talk to the HR department, talk to the international services office, because uh, they often are really great. I think at helping you understand what a pharmacy department may be overthinking a little bit. And some of the things which are real, I think kind of concerns. The other thing, you know, when, when I was writing that article, just to help me better understand the complexities is that I talked to our graduate medical education office, the GME office, you know, they process a lot of things and granted that, you know, for medical residents, it is different, um, but they have a lot of experience in helping you understand how you have to manage and watch and monitor like, you know, the immigration statuses and just kind of like these workflows. And so, yeah, they were actually very friendly, at least here at my institution. They they sat down with me and helped me understood. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting in comparing and contrasting. And so I think getting some of those perspectives can help any program kind of understand, you know, like what the... What is it that maybe you're a little bit too worried about? Because sometimes we can be a very cautious (laughs) profession. And and some of the things are like, no, it it really isn't that bad. Thanks, James. And uh, Norm, you got anything to add on that? Yeah. One of the things I find really beneficial is also collaborating with the legal departments. I mean, HR is helpful to an extent as well as everybody else. But legal departments, every institution I imagine has their own legal department for a variety of reasons. Not all are well-versed on immigration law. And again, being specialty, it's not, you know, something that is necessarily a resource for everybody. But, you know, I learned that, especially with the programs where you have these teaching hospitals, they have medical residents. My health system in particular, when I went and pursued residency, they had a lot of experience with medical residents, but not with pharmacy residents. And so, you know, that was kind of a learning process for everybody. But ultimately, those lawyers, you know, they were able to help and facilitate uh, getting my visa organized and what have you. You know, the learning curve can and probably will be very painful when you're going through it. But, um, you know, kind of like James alluded to earlier, doing your own research, digging into it, learning the ins and outs of government policy and 
even trying to find the answers that you're looking for, I found the information now is much more clear than it, what it was, you know, nine years ago when I was pursuing residency. So, you know, maybe even lawyering up and get talking to an immigration lawyer is not necessarily a cheap way to do it, but certainly, you know, you can have at least an in, in initial meeting to talk with uh, an immigration lawyer and kind of learn what options are available for you. And then if you do ultimately decide to pursue H-1B visas or, or what have you and get that sponsorship, then, you know, that might come out of your pocket, but it's still beneficial. And bear in mind, too, that the government will can and does make mistakes. You know, persistence does pay off. I'm, I like to think I'm a prime example of that. I'm a poster child for anything that can go awry, will go awry. You know, I've had all sorts of those, but even with my permanent residency interview, I was actually at a conference when it was scheduled and I asked permission to get it rescheduled and I got a letter from them saying, yes, yeah, sure, no problem. And then uh, they were supposed to reach out to me within a month and reschedule my appointment. Well, they didn't do that. And six weeks later, I got a letter saying my permanent residency application was rejected and I had to leave the country and all this other stuff. But Fortunately, I kept the letter that said, yes, you're approved. You can do this. And my immigration lawyer, in his own words, said, in 18 years of immigration law, I've never had an application rejected like this. I've never had to deal with anything like this. And I said, look, I'm your poster child for what will go wrong. So, you know, that persistence does matter. It does pay off. But you also have to recognize that, unfortunately, sometimes they just make the decisions. But, yeah, I, I definitely would encourage you at least just to talk with an immigration lawyer at the get-go. Well, great. Well, that's all the time we have, guys. I really appreciate your insight in this topic. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe rate or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.